the Spectator's prestigious Economic Innovator of the Year Award in partnership with Investec and now in their sixth year. Wherever you're based in the UK, we can't wait to hear about the success of your business and the impact you're making on the economy and society in 2023. Applications are now open and will close June 16th. To learn more and apply, please visit spectator.co.uk forward slash innovator. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots. I'm James Seal and I'm joined today by Katie Balls and Kath Haddon of the Institute for Government. Katie, where are we at on the COVID inquiry then? So in the saga, and I've been away, but I did notice this seems to be what has dominated the recess period. And ultimately, in the battle between... There's lots of little battles going on at the moment. There seems to be Rishi Sunak versus Boris Johnson on the COVID inquiry. There's a cabinet office versus the official COVID inquiry. We have a situation where the government seems to be suing its own inquiry. And we're only, I think early stages often with these inquiries they uh talked about being um rather soft or you know pandering to the government i think it's safe to say that the mood music so far in this one suggests that does not fall into this category (laughs) but ultimately as i think we talked about previously on the podcast the cabinet office is launching a judicial review to try and stop having to hand over these non-redacted whatsapp messages all around boris johnson's but this is about precedent so precedent not just in terms of other ministers who may have to do the same with regard to the covid inquiry but also more long term what this means for future inquiries now what is quite interesting here is of course the cabinet office are doing this but boris johnson and it's his messages in this instance it concerns is effectively saying publish my messages and he has today said that he is very relaxed about publishing his messages. He's written to say he, he will send to the inquiry his unredacted messages regardless. But there is a slight catch because he is talking about unredacted messages really uh, a year or so into the pandemic. So we're not talking right now, at least, about probably the most important messages for the COVID inquiry by Boris Johnson, which would be the arrival of COVID, the first uh, batch of lockdowns. And this is down to a security issue on his phone. Um, I think if you remember Pop Bitch at one point, I think released what his phone number was. So so I think there is a there is a reasonable argument rather than, oh, the dog ate my homework. Mm. Why Boris Johnson is saying that he is unable to access these messages from his first phone that he had to stop using. He's saying that he was told by security services to turn it on would be a risk and therefore why don't the cabinet office come around and deal with it? So you have Boris Johnson sounding very forthcoming on the inquiry. Obviously, as things stand, it's still the case that it's only one stage of messages that will be going through. And does this put the cabinet office in a tricky position? I think the trickiest thing is lots of legal experts are saying that they think it's very unlikely the judicial review is going to be effective and therefore the government may have to hand these over regardless. Yeah, Kath, I mean, the government can't win this judicial review, can they? And how have they come to be embroiled in all this mess? Yeah, I, I don't see how they do. I mean, the, the powers of an inquiry are pretty wide ranging. And I mean, Katie's right, you know, past inquiries have had bits of battles over, uh, you know, getting access to material. But but Baroness Hallett seems to be uh, much stronger and sure of herself and very willing to use her powers. So that suggests she's got a good legal team behind her as well. And obviously, she's a former judge. I don't know. I mean, it does seem that it's one of these ones that even if they did win that battle, even if they won that that JR, they kind of lose the war because it just looks so bad 
And given the whole point of the COVID inquiry is to learn lessons and a bit of catharsis for the country as a whole, it is really risky if it then looks like a, a whitewash. So it's a really tricky one for, for the government as to why they've gone and, and done this. It just sort of looks so bad. And there's an extent to which this is about you know, the government being hoist by their own petard, isn't there? Because, I mean, they set the terms of reference for this, they agreed them, and they were quite a broad one, which opened up the scope about this question of relevancy, uh, which you wrote, one of your colleagues wrote about in a very good IFG blog this week. Yep, Emma Norris, she's uh, been watching this and watching inquiries for some years. Yes, it is an incredibly wide-ranging uh, inquiry. And uh, I mean, to some extent, that's inevitable because COVID is so wide-ranging. But at the same time, you you know, it is covering not only the decision-making at the heart of government, but obviously the entire outcomes in terms of how the health service managed it. Um, you know, looking at health and social care, that will be a, a very controversial aspect that will come up after the election because she's looking at different modules as she goes. And she will be writing up reports as she goes. So we won't have to wait until the final report to, to hear about that. So, yes, it's massive. And that's part of the problem in this, because COVID was so wide ranging. It, it affected all government departments. It affected all of us in so many different ways that it's hard to say that nothing is completely irrelevant, because even the stuff that was going on that wasn't COVID, it's a question mark as to how that affected what you were doing that was covid uh, you know, and the other reason why they're slightly hoisted by their own petard is we've been saying for a while, look, it's a problem, you know, using WhatsApp in government is great. It, in some respects, it can be a really good way of sort of basically cutting the bureaucratic corners. But it's a problem if you are crossing the streams, effectively, if you are mixing up very political, personal stuff with what is government business. And it's a problem if you're making major decisions on WhatsApp. And, and that's what we're seeing now, that that's the sort of outcome for it. And I think this is this is part of it in the sense that we're obviously talking about what it means directly for the inquiry, but I think some of it comes down to the increased use of WhatsApp and government for decision making. You're having much faster decisions being made. Some would say it speeds up government decisions, removes some of the bureaucracy. But where is the line then in terms of what counts as a formal email, formal evidence that should be documented and something where you have an expectation of privacy? And that is partly why when I'm saying, oh, why are they doing this? This looks like PR madness. And you're clearly seeing the victims of the of those who lost their lives during the pandemic saying, oh, this is a whitewash. I think if we're looking, I suppose, to say, why is the government doing this? I think it's partly because how do we adapt to the way the government is making decisions now? And perhaps government should be doing less on WhatsApp. But this is one of the reasons they are trying to avoid a precedent situation here. I did notice that the former Labour spinner, John McTernan, had a, a good point recently um, from his experience of his time in government, where he said, politicians and inquiries are rules. Number one, don't call them. Number two, if you're stupid enough to call them, don't make them independent. Don't give them powers. Know the conclusion you want. Appoint a chair who know, knows this. Number three, when they use the independent powers, remember rule one. So perhaps uh, if John McTurner had put their advice out earlier, we'd be seeing difference in terms of the terms and some of the choices. But the government has now got itself in disposition. And I think just generally speaking, I think what the past week has shown, catching up with it now, is just how painful potentially this COVID inquiry is going to be. Mm. Obviously, the most painful for people who uh, have been severely affected by the pandemic, who want lessons learned, but also on a political level, painful for a government that's trying to turn the page. It's not just, uh, you know, the dredging up of former uh, memories that we will have heard vague reports of. It seems like we could get fresh revelations. And that is a challenge for a Tory government that's trying to uh, 
sound fresh and shake off some of the baggage when this is just going to be rolling and rolling on. Do you think there's an element of the timeline here, which is that, you know, you've got sort of 18 months until there's an election going to happen. Um, surely a day one of a Labour government, if it was elected, could just release all this information if the judicial review was still ongoing? They can't entirely. So the papers of former ministers are basically locked away for a successive government. So you can't, as a Labour government, come in and start accessing right. all of the papers of, of former ministers. So no, they, they wouldn't be able to, to do that. I mean, you know, they could put pressure on the civil service and say, no, we want this. But then you could have former ministers who are then private individuals still trying to take the COVID inquiry to court. So it, it wouldn't entirely work in that way. And what is the sort of estimate as to cost? Because I think the last figure I saw was in August was around a sort of 85 million already. I mean, do we have any idea of the scale of how much this is going to cost relative to other inquiries? Uh, inquiries, they yeah, they cost masses. I can't remember the exact figures for the Savile inquiry, which went on for something like 12 years, but it was into the hundreds of millions. It is a massive undertaking. And I mean, that's the other side of it. You know, this JR in itself is going to be costing money, uh, nothing like that. But nonetheless, it's going to be sucking up people's time. It's going to be sucking up money. So the whole thing, yes, it is definitely uh, has a fiscal impact as well as uh, a sort of impact. And as Katie says, it's going to be affecting what we're talking about, particularly once the all the in, uh, in-person inquiry uh, hearings start in a couple of weeks' time. Because, again, we saw this with Chilcot. That's when a lot of the sort of political narrative is driven, when people stump, come and start talking about what they remember. And, you know, there may be lots of different people who want to point out how it was somebody else's fault uh, or whatever. But I think a lot of it's going to come down to whether or not you feel comfortable in your defence of what you did. And it's clear that Boris Johnson feels that he's happy to defend his record and therefore happy to be transparent in it. And all this is doing is opening up questions about whether other people in government like Rishi Sunak are as comfortable in defending what they did. And talking of uh, fiscal considerations, Katie, Liz Truss is back in the news with our allies with uh, an intervention on inheritance tax. Tell us more. Yes, this is a campaign by The Telegraph originally allies of Liz Truss, now it is Liz Truss herself, um, saying they back an inheritance tax cut. Though, of course, Liz Truss did uh, at least try to slash many taxes in the mini-budget, but at that point, inheritance tax did not make it in. But she is making the case for it. I mean, I don't think this is even an idea the government's particularly opposed to. It's been quite well covered for some time. It is one of the options the Treasury is considering in terms of potential tax cuts ahead of the next election. The argument for it is that is actually very popular when you poll groups, focus groups, particularly amongst Tory voters. Blue wall, but also I think some say in focus groups in the red wall, it's quite popular too, is a really disliked tax. And because actually, generally speaking, not that many people pay it, there are some in government who would argue that you have to be very careful what you cut tax-wise in case it's inflationary. And they do not think inheritance tax is particularly inflationary because only a small number pay it. And also a lot of it is in assets mm. rather than releasing displays uh, people go and spend more money. And therefore it could be something, if you speak to people in favour in government, not just trustites, which would create a dividing line, say, in some of these blue wall seats for the Lib Dems of the second largest party. But then the counter-argument is that we keep talking about taxes on younger people. Now, maybe inheritance goes to, goes to them, but it tends to be the older age it would probably benefit, at least initially. And 
does it make it easier for Labour to attack Rishi Sunak? I think the political risk is that Rishi Sunak has already been depicted by Labour as someone who is out of touch, a member of the super rich. Um, people talk about the wealth of his wife's family. Mm. And therefore, if he were to choose to slash rather than abolish, let's see, inheritance tax, probably more realistic, reformer even. Um, does that mean uh, Labour can start to say, well, Rishi Sunak's looking after his own? Uh, and I think that that is the counter-argument to whether or not they should do it. And Kath, talk us through the uh, timeline in terms of policy making. Obviously, you've got sort of 18 months or so. What can be done in terms of actually getting these tax cuts, if they were introduced, through the system? Yeah, I mean, you know, this is the major problem that Rishi Sunak's got. He's six months plus into his premiership, but looking, as you say, at an election 18 months away. And, you know, Katie's just said it out. He's going to be pulled in so many different directions. There's the kind of big picture. What does Rishi Sunak want his premiership to be about? If there wasn't that time constraint, what would he be focusing on? There's the what does he think is going to win the election? Um, You know, what can actually change their position Uh, in the polls. And and there'll be lots of different views about that. And similarly, what do other camps in his party think that he should be doing? And how much can he sort of, you know, does he need to actually give them what they want, especially when you've got people facing a very different political uh, situation, electoral situation in different seats across the country. But at the same time, there's limited availability in the legislative calendar. You've got probably a few months left. You've got then a couple of months and then it's the summer recess. We assume there will be a new King's speech and a new parliamentary session probably after the conference season in October. So you've basically then got one year to try and get through any remaining legislation. So he's going to have to think about what are the priorities of things that he wants to go to the country with and say, look what we've achieved and things that, you know, he wants, he thinks that they've got to get through in order to show that the government is delivering and, and try and improve their electoral prospects. So it really is going to be a massive prioritisation programme for them. Thank you, Kath. Thank you, Katie. And thank you for listening to Coffee House Shots. 